you'll open your Bibles, we'll be in Romans 13 tonight. Romans chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'm going to begin back in chapter 12, verse 2, as a reminder to us all. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Chapter 13, verse 1, every person is to be subjection in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom Honor. The Barna Research Group just released today, this afternoon actually, uh, some research that they've done asking citizens in their recent poll what Jesus would have been giving them the choice between socialism and capitalism. 24% came back and said Jesus would have been a supporter of socialism. 14% said Jesus would support capitalism. There's only one problem with that. Neither are true. Jesus, brace yourselves, would have supported totalitarianism. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Total authority. Now, it's not fascism. Fascism actually denies people their voice, and Jesus has most obviously given us a voice. That allows us to decide to follow Him, to love Him, to to be His own. But He is a total ruler. He is a dictator, a loving dictator, a gracious dictator, a perfect dictator. And when He returns to rule and reign on this earth, it will be from the authority of one. And to rule and reign with Him, to serve in His government, means we serve under the authority of one perfect being, that is Jesus Christ. Now, Sunday morning, I shared something after second service that I didn't share first hour. I didn't feel like I had time, so I want to share it with you right now for those of you who missed it. And for those who didn't, you get to hear this again. It is an excerpt from an epistle, a letter of Mephetus to Diognetus. It's a second century Christian apologetic. And some actually ascribe this epistle to Justin Martyr who lived around 130, 150, I think around there he was born, uh, A.D., and then just on into 200 a little bit. The reason why people don't think it was by a guy named Mephetus is because Mephetus in the Greek means disciple. So we believe this was a letter written and entitled from the disciple 
to Diognetus. We don't know who Diognetus was, but it's a beautiful apologetic, and it's actually much longer than what I read Sunday and what I'm going to read to you right now. But listen closely to this. It's important because I stumbled across it and it so profoundly articulates and agrees with the mentality of living for that age and not for this age that we've been talking about. So here it is. Christians, he writes, are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. This teaching of theirs has not been contrived by the invention and speculation of inquisitive men. Nor are they propagating mere human teaching as some people do. They live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance has put them. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. But at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. They live in their own native lands, but as aliens, as citizens, they share all things with others, but like aliens, they suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them as their own native country, and every native land is as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else, but they do not kill unwanted babies. They offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but as citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws, but they go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but they are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and they gain life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are assured of everything and yet have plenty of all things. They are dishonored, yet gain glory through dishonor. Their names are blackened, yet they are cleared. They are mocked and blessed in return. They are treated outrageously and yet behave respectfully to others. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if they've been given new life. They are attacked as aliens. They are persecuted. Yet those who hate them cannot give any reason for their hostility. To put it simply, the soul is to the body as Christians are to this world. The soul is spread throughout all the parts of the body and Christians through all the cities of this world. The soul is in the body, but not of the body. Christians are in the world, but they are not of the world. That's so true. Now, in many cases, I read through that and I think, well, at least I fall short. Maybe you all don't, but I read that and think, wow, this is, this is describing, I think, the ideal. Describing what I would love to be referred to, or how I'd like to be referred to. It is beyond me, and yet, it is an ideal. It is, I believe, our calling. And while that's not Scripture, it certainly speaks to Scripture and the identity we are to have as aliens in this world, in this age. This is not my age. I am not to conform to this age, but to conform to the age to come. See, that's life worth living because that's life that will never end. It goes on and on. And that really is the subtext of this entire section of Romans. And I had never seen it this way before. I'm telling you honestly, I'd never read it this way. I, like so many, have read Romans 12, 13, 14 to the end of the chapter. I, I have read it as, you know, principles for Christian living. 
But as I said on Sunday, if it's only about Christian living, then we are wasting our time. If it's just about being good citizens, then we're missing something. It's got to be more. I think all of us in our heart of hearts know there's more than just even good Christian life now. This is all about preparation for the age to come. And I'll tell you what, that's doing something to me to think about it that way. That is changing my entire life's perspective. It is a paradigm shift and it's kind of rattling me a little bit. I've always talked about the age to come, but to consider it in terms of this is preparation. Everything that happens, the good, the bad, the struggles and difficulties and hardships are preparation for that age. The blessings are realization for that age. Now, Three things mark out this peculiar, alien, out-of-this-world people called Christians. Three things that truly should differentiate us as we grow in faith and our understanding of Jesus. Number one, the communication of faith. You see, faith is our language. Secondly, the expectation of hope, our longing. And thirdly, the demonstration of love, which we are called to make our lifestyle. The language of faith, the longing of hope, and the lifestyle of love. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, but now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But what does he say? The greatest of these is love. Well, Paul continues with that thought, and it begins to soak through all of this preparation for next age teaching as he continues, verse 8 of chapter 13, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is all summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He writes, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. I honked at a lady in Oak Harbor this week. A man was jaywalking across the street, cutting across where there was no crosswalk. And she stopped in the middle of the street, and I almost slammed into the back of her because it's not a place where you're supposed to stop. So, I honked. What was she thinking? She went to turn left on 20. We're on Barrington there over between Safeway and, and uh, what is Dairy Queen. And she went to turn left and I went to turn right. I buzzed right on by her. I'm like, you know, what's wrong with you? Clearly you have not studied your driver's license manual in a while. Stopping for a guy in the middle of the street. I mean, we all know you run over a person rather than cause an accident behind you, right? Isn't that in the book? So I buzz by her. I I take a right-hand turn. I head on down to Pioneer, and I'm stopped at the light to go left to Pioneer, and I see her pull up behind me and get out of her car and make her way up to the side window. And I'm sitting there going... I'm praying, please don't go to the bridge. Please don't go to the bridge. Please don't go to the bridge. She's railing on me, and I'm, I just roll down my window far enough to go, honk if you love Jesus, roll up the window and hang a left, you know. 
And I go a little bit further down. I figure that's it, you know. And I, I had to pull in. So I was meeting Eva to sign some paperwork at the Pony Express. We had to have it notarized. And I, I get to the Pony Express. And I get out of my van. And she pulls in behind me right there. <laughs> Clearly not happy about the whole honking situation. <laughs> And so she starts yelling at me. Oh, so now you're parking here to go into the Christian bookstore? That's what she said. And I turned around and I have my new sunglasses on. My Oakleys. Pretty cool. Can't see my eyes when they're on. Drives, you know, staff nuts when I'm wearing them. They're like, what are you, who are you looking at? Doesn't matter. Anyway, I have the sunglasses on. I turned around and looked at her and I went, I am through talking with you, ma'am. And I walked into the store. God help me to love in word and in deed. God help me to love in everyday behavior, even in the stupid things. Now, a honk, okay, we all honk every now and then. And if you live in Israel, you honk every three seconds. It's just the way it is. If you're in Europe, same thing. You're always honking. But I don't know. That haunted me. When I sat down and opened up, and began to study and read, owe nothing to anyone except to love. <laughs> and you think about it, how hard is it to do? Just to show grace and mercy and compassion and love and care to other people. Paul comes along here and he is simply repeating what Jesus already commanded. What he admonished of the lawyer who came and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oy. You know, the loving God part is easy. All I got to do is show up to worship you know, somewhat on time. And I can I can worship Him and love Him. I mean, it's really easy to love someone who you know died for you and loves you greatly. Then He had to throw in that second one, love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, ah, really? And for those who say, I love God, it's just people I can't stand. John writes in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, he says in verse 8. Owe nothing except to love. Now, I need to say something about this real quickly. Entire ministries have been built around this verse. People have built up theologies around it, believing and stating that this says that all debt is sin. Owe nothing to anyone. Don't have any debt whatsoever. Don't have bank loans. Don't have home mortgages. Don't have business loans. Don't invest in your church loans. Any of that. It's sinful. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, I'm no fan of debt. However... I question that mentality. And here's why. On Sunday, we heard from Jesus regarding practical love. Listen again to what he said. Matthew 5.41 Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. That makes sense. That's practical love. He says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Well, if it's a sin to borrow money, if indebtedness of any kind is sinful, why does he approve lending? 
It's just worth thinking about. And furthermore, in Matthew 25-27 and Luke 19-23, He tells two parables, similar parables, the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. And Jesus again condones the ideas of interest received on investment. So there's something to this. And again, as I was saying, I don't condone debt. I'm not saying that, oh, well, good. There's, there's the loophole. We can all go deep into debt. It's not what I'm saying. What we need to gather here and understand is that the Spirit is engaging something much bigger than money. What He's talking about in this whole section is not how you deal with dollars and cents and if we think that way, we get lost in this age and we forget about the next. This is not a financial statement from Paul. This is an eternal statement from Paul dealing with love. Dealing with the fact, oh, oh, nothing to anyone except to love? Gang, that's a hard issue. That's recognizing the debt that I owe. That I can never repay. I mean, consider that. Love is the highest value in the kingdom of God, and it is a debt I can never fully repay. Who can pay Jesus back for salvation? Free and clear. I didn't ask for it. I didn't sign a petition to send Him to the cross so that I might have it. He chose to die. He chose to love me before I was born. He loved me through every single one of my sins. Forgiving as we went because of His blood poured out for me. How will I ever pay that back? I won't. That's the debt of love. And Paul is now saying that love is the greatest practicum of preparation for the kingdom. You want to be prepared to serve in Jesus' government? Love now. Love people. And if I see that lady driving around Oak Harbor, I'm going to stop her. I'll probably have to honk to get her to stop her. Hey! I know what her car looks like and my eyes are going to be open. We are called to be a people of love. And the more I practice love, the more fit I will be to rule and reign with Jesus in the next age. Now you might ask the question, how do you know, Rick, that the kingdom continues to be on Paul's mind as we go through this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at the next verse. Do this. That is what? Love. Love. Practice love. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Wake up! The coming of Jesus Christ is near. And I love the statement, maybe it's obvious to you, it is to me, but salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. That with every second that ticks by on the clock, we're getting closer, gang. Moment by moment, we are getting closer to the coming of Jesus. He says in verse 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near. That phrase, almost gone, is a cool phrase in the Greek, it's prokopto. And prokopto means the night is far spent. In fact, typically the word is a positive word that means progressing forward. They write, the night is almost gone, but what it really should read is, the night is progressing, the day is almost here. Boy, that reads well, because the night does seem to be progressing, doesn't it? The darkness and the, and the lawlessness and the anger and the hatred in this age seems to be progressing, but you know what? As the night progresses, guess what's getting closer? The morning. 
So yes, the night is almost spent. It's drawing quickly to a close. Jesus said, Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So be encouraged. We are so close. So close. Perhaps before I finish tonight, I'm giving Jesus two hours. I know the world seems dark, but it's not moments to midnight. It is seconds to sunrise. So don't give up. Don't go back. Don't be conformed to this dark age. I was thinking that it's been 12 and a half years since I first taught about the rapture of the church and Jesus coming to call His people home in this fellowship. First time I brought it up, mentioned it, began to share and teach about these things. We've talked about it so much over the last dozen years. But man, it's been a dozen years. And you might be tempted to say, as some in the last days will say, have said, where's the promise of His coming? Second Peter 3 verse 4. Peter answers that in verse 9 of that same chapter. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you may recall on that Olivet Discourse when Jesus said, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Matthew 24.32 When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that He is near right at the door. Now, I believe the fig tree speaks of Israel. I've talked about that. I've shared that before many times. There are several reasons for that. But I believe the founding of Israel as a nation, May 14th, 1948, was the beginning of the fig tree putting forth its leaves. And that this is the generation that will see the coming of the Lord. What if you're wrong, Rick? that I'm wrong. But I think we are. And I am pretty convinced of these things. But I realized the other day in thinking about this that that is not the point of the fig tree. That's not the point of what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't saying, watch for Israel to be reborn. Oh, He may have been to a degree, but what He's really saying is, live ready. Be prepared. I am coming at a time. In fact, he says, you must be ready. Matthew twenty four forty four. for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think He will. Well, I don't think He's going to come tonight, Rick. Good. Keep thinking that way. Because that's when He's going to come. When we do not think He will. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. I love it. That's such a recurring theme for Paul, both armor and light. You know, he talks about putting on the armor of God. Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6, 1 Thessalonians 5. And in both sections, he talks about being sons and daughters of day and of the light. And after teaching about the rapture of the church, the Harpazo, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, You are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So let's not sleep as others do. Let's be alert and sober for those who sleep through their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Isn't that interesting? How often do the beer parties happen at 9 a.m.? Hey, party at my place, 10 a.m., see you there. Crumpets and beer. It's at night. 
It's at night. In fact, doesn't it seem interesting that the sin increases at night? Why? Because it's dark. And sin loves darkness. Let sleep at night be awake in the day. Since we are of the day, he says, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet. Breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, faith, hope, and love. And there are our characteristics once again. Because salvation is so near. Because the night is almost over. He says in verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Because again, daylight hours, we tend to be pretty normal. Most people. It's the nighttime that we get funky. Right? He says, not in carousing and drunkenness and not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality and not in strife and jealousy. Man, that's last day's teaching if I ever heard it. That's what characterizes so much of our culture. And there are those who would read a list like that and go, oh, come on. Carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality are fine. Listen, I didn't say they weren't. They weren't fun. People wouldn't do them. But they're still sin. They still damage. And they damage primarily because they draw us into this age rather than allowing us to be prepared for the next. And these things lie to us. Pleasure lies to us. It says, this, this is the moment that you wanted. This, this is going to make the night great until you're throwing up. You know? Until a disease enters your life that you were not expecting or planning for. He mentions in that list of carousing drunkenness, promiscuity and sensuality, strife and jealousy which are just as bad. And these are the things of this age. This age where all the restraints are being pulled off. Have you noticed that? Interesting, the word for sensuality here, I'll just pull this one single word out because it caught my attention. It's aselgia. And aselgia in the Greek means unrestrained in moral attitude and behavior. That's what sensuality is. No restraint. No holding back. No self-control. I'm just going to do whatever feels good, when it feels good, and the moment it feels good, and, and who cares about the consequences? That's exactly what Paul is talking about. And in verse 14 he says, in contrast to that, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people do that in a different way. They put on Christ. Eh, I'm just going to put on Christ. You know what I mean? But really they put off Christ. Or they they put on Christ in terms of showing up at church looking all holy and thinking, I'm putting him on. You know, he doesn't really know what's going on, but that's cool because he's only stuck here in the church building. They put on Christ. Paul says, no, 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 no. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Galatians 3.27 He said, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. I love that verse. Head to toe, wrapped up in Jesus. Man, that's what I want. And when I'm wrapped up in Jesus, it's a whole lot harder to reach the horn. Rick, you're really laboring over that one, aren't you? Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new self. 
which in God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Man, that's good. That's good stuff. Righteousness is good stuff. Holiness is wonderful. Faithfulness. All these things that people say sound religious and boring. No, it's marvelous. It's freedom. It's liberty in the Spirit. How do I put on Christ? Only one way I know. Jesus says you've got to be born again. You have to be born anew. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which we were all born of water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Which, by the way, is why we do all that carousing and sensuality and sexual promiscuity, because we're born into the flesh, and that's what the flesh wants. But he says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Put on Jesus. Put on the Spirit of God. Through faith in God's grace. And yes, being baptized is as the outward expression of that glorious faith and that glorious baptism He offers and, and asking to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to have the Spirit poured out on you, to dwell within you, to walk alongside you, the Spirit of God everywhere I am and everywhere I go. Born again. And I love, he says, and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. No space in the closet. Clean it out, man. All the old clothing of the flesh, throw it away. Put on the new. Now, in chapter 14, Paul turns to love in the church. Love in the fellowship And if I'm being completely honest with you all, it is a place I found to be one of the toughest proving grounds for love. It's almost easier to love out in the marketplace than it is in the church fellowship. Now I'm not talking about you all because you're here and we all love each other and we have this down, right? But where my conflicts have been the most hurtful, where my challenges have been the greatest, has been right in the church. And I don't know why. I think part of that is because we so don't expect it. We think that here, uh, among all places, or above all places, here is where there's peace. Here's where we can chill and just love each other and hug each other. It's all good, man. We're singing gospel songs. How can we be spiteful? (laughs) In the church. And I think it's marvelous that God set it up this way. Talk about training up people for His kingdom. Watch this, verse 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. That's y'all. Not for... <laughs> By the way, I will tell you this. The one who's weak in faith is usually the one who thinks they're darn strong. It's usually the exact opposite of what's really going on. We'll talk about that more on Sunday. Accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats Veggies only. Sorry, Paul. I've been picking on you. I don't know why. You're just in my you're in my sights, man. <laughs> he eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And what he's talking about here, and he really gets into it in First Corinthians, is eating meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. 
And now it's being sold in the marketplace at half price because it was used for sacrifice. So now you can buy the meat cheaper because it's pagan. It's leftover pagan meat. You know, the Baals didn't want this part, so you can buy it. All right? And some in the early church were like, you cannot eat that because it was part of the animal that was sacrificed to a false god. You can't eat that meat. It's like us eating hot dogs. Does anyone know what's in that? I mean, like chicken lips and I don't know. Weird. Some don't want to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Some are like, look, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Hey, those who don't and those who do are all in the same fellowship. Don't judge each other is what Paul is saying. Who are you, verse 4, to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Which, by the way, is why any of us ever stand. Verse 5, one person regards one day above the other, and another regards every day alike. So there were Jews saying, we need to keep the holidays. And there were Gentiles going... I don't want to keep Sabbath. That's boring. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Not one of us, and here's the real point, lives for himself. (laughs) And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now we're going to sit in this section a little bit more on Sunday because I think the whole body needs to hear it. But I will say this much. At the beginning, there in verse 1, he mentions the judgment on opinions. And what he's talking about here, and needs to be clarified, this is the judgment of opinions, meaning the judgment of motives. You are not to judge each other's motives. Which is basically assuming that I know what the other person is thinking and what is driving them. Why they're behaving in the way they're behaving. Why they're acting in the way they're acting. Oh, I know. Because of my vast discerning wisdom, I know what you're thinking. I've told you before, I don't have a clue what you're thinking in Bible study. I look at some of your faces, and there are those who are sitting there and they're like this. And the only reason they look like that is they're trying so hard to stay awake. And then there are others who are sitting there like... And that's the guy who comes up afterwards and can recount the entire teaching. So I've learned not to judge because I'm such a poor judge of opinion. Let me ask you, who here can do that? Who can judge motives? Are you that good that you know why a person's doing what they're doing or what drives their thinking or perhaps what their entire life history is leading up to this moment that caused what they're doing? Do we really know? Don't judge that. I only know of one who could ever make that kind of a judgment. John chapter 2 verse 24 says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. I don't have that luxury. 
I don't know what is in man, what is in woman. Oh yeah, in the broad sense, the sin nature, I get it. But I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what drives people. By the way, Jesus knew even the depth of our opinions and loved us anyway. I don't know what your opinions or thoughts or motives are. So why do I find it so hard to love sometimes? We need to take the lead from Jesus. Verse 10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now verse 11, Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, 23. Where he reads, where he says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. It's now the second time in the book of Romans that Paul has quoted that verse. And you know that it's talking about Jesus. And the Spirit makes that application in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that confession, that bowing, that worshipful attitude is going to begin at the Bema seat. The Bema seat? The the Bema is the word there. Judgment seat of God in verse 10. The judgment seat of God is the Bema. B-E-M-A. You might jot that in the corner of your, in the margins of your Bible. Sometimes, from time to time, we refer to the Bema seat. That's it. Now, the Apostle knew exactly what he was talking about when he used that phrase, the Bema Seat. The Apostle was stood up before the Bema Seat in Corinth. You may recall Acts 18, verse 12, while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, which means there must have been only about six Jews because they had to fit in one accord. They rose up against Paul, and I'm just doing the math, and brought him before the Bema. The Bema. We stood before that Bema, that judgment seat, a group of us there in Corinth last month. And it was not what I thought it would be. I'd always heard about the Bema seat. I knew we were going to drive down and visit the Bema seat in Corinth, where Paul stood and, and I figured it would be about the size of our stage. This is what I imagined, honestly, with, with some steps leading up to it. Kind of a low, where, where the proconsul or the, the judge could sit and he could, he could look out. No, no, no. The Bema seat was about 12 to 14 feet high. About 30 to 40 feet wide. Solid stone. A solid stone platform. And so then, up on top of this high platform, sat the judge looking down. The whole idea of the Bema seat was to be imposing. That you'd have to stand looking up and the judge looking down. And you are in a low position before him. And he can rule against you. And you are supposed to be shaken in your sandals. The Bema of God needs no such grandeur. Because you see the one sitting on the seat is marvelous enough. God's Bema could be ground level and we would be on our faces before Him. 
But the bema seat of man was, was big and imposing. Now, when he talks about this judgment seat, the judgment seat of God, I want you to be very clear. There are three different locations from which judgment is meted out to people. Three. The cross is judgment seat number one. No seat at all. Jesus was lifted up, nailed into the wood of the cross. But it was at the cross where Jesus paid for sin. And as I've said before, and I want to remind you often that if you have faith in Jesus, then all of your sin, everything that you've done, all of the the failure of your life was nailed up and paid for 2,000 years ago. You are free and clear. You are a saved person by the grace of God. Your judgment day is 2,000 years old. So that was the first place of judgment. The second, the Bema, what Paul's talking about right here, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Who's he talking to when he writes this? Believers. Believers. Saints. We. And I can say the same to each of us here tonight. We will all stand before the Bema of God. The Bema is where saints are rewarded or not. For faithfulness or lack thereof. But the Bema has nothing to do with salvation. Understand that. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. But it doesn't depend on you. You're not going to stand there wondering if you're saved. No. If you're in Jesus, your salvation is secure. This is about reward. It's not just about your heavenly reward. That comes by God's grace. 100% by the grace of God. You cannot earn it. But the Bible is clear. We can and we do earn some degree of reward. What does that look like? I don't rightly know. I have some concepts, some idea. But speaking to believers about the Bema, Paul illuminates this for us. By the way, the third place of judgment is the great throne. Don't confuse the Bema with the great throne. The great throne judgment of Revelation 20 is a judgment of everyone who wants to be judged based on their deeds. And that is a judgment of salvation. If you want to be judged for eternity based on what you've done, then you are at the great throne. Revelation 20 tells that whole story. And it's not pretty because if you want to be judged by your deeds, all you need is one foul deed and you're gone. It is a judgment that is completely fair, but will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that nobody, but nobody is good enough to wander into heaven. That's the great throne judgment. The Bema Seat is not that. Remember, we were judged at Calvary and Jesus took the full punishment. Our judgment was true. Our judgment deserved death. And Jesus took it. So paid We now come before the judgment, the Bema Seat of God and of Christ. And speaking to believers, 2 Corinthians 5.10, he said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. Believers judged at the Bema Seat, according to what we've done, good or bad. And that judgment, again, not to salvation, it's a judgment of reward. And we have talked about this recently. The Bema of God and of Christ is referred to in at least three other places. So you have 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, where Paul writes, If any man builds on the foundation, which is Christ, he's the foundation, 
If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Think about that. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, put it all in the fire, what's going to come out the other side? Gold will. Silver. Precious stones. Wood, hay, and straw are toast. He says, if any man's work which he has built on the foundation of Jesus remains, he will receive a reward. Where does your idea come from that we're going to be rewarded? Right there. He'll receive a reward. If any man's work, I love this, is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Got it? He'll be saved, yet so as through fire. It's not a judgment of condemnation, though I think some may arrive in heaven with the seat of their pants still smoldering a bit. Just got in. Eyebrows singed. But I'm here, man! And I'll tell you what, I'd rather be cleaning toilets in heaven than not be there at all. So there are rewards. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, this is the now third place, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. He, paralleling this passage, says, Do not go on passing judgment before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of hearts. You know what that means? I don't have to. I don't have to worry about your motives and you don't have to worry about mine. I don't judge you for what I think you're thinking. God's going to take care of all that for all of us. He'll reveal that. You know, I've been joking about the whole honking incident, but I'll tell you what the real issue was for me and why it bothered me so much is I knew what was in my heart. I knew what I was thinking and feeling. Enough said. He will disclose the motives of hearts and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Where? At the Bema seat. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24, another reference to, I believe, the Bema seat where Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. What's that have to do with the Bema seat? The Bema seat was also for the Olympic Games. The Bema seat was the place that the runners would compete and they would come up to receive a a wreath for running or crowns for conquering in their games. And so that's the positive side of it as well. And there were rewards given. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. A crown. I want a crown. I do. A big honking crown. With lots of jewels in it. Pure gold. Just huge. You know, bigger than the Pope's hat. Why, Rick? To cast before Him in worship. I I tell you what, I want as much as I possibly can have to throw at His feet in worship. So yeah, give me a crown if I may return it to Him in praise and in His glory. Behold, 
Revelation 22.12, I'm coming quickly, he says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And that is not a statement of salvation. It is a statement of rewards. And Jesus is speaking that to believers who are going to be saved. By the way, you know who else you will not be giving an account for? Verse 12, he says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Who will I not give an account for? Anybody else. Just me. I just have to account for me. I'm only going to answer for me. Rick, what did you do with you? What did you do with the talents that I gave you? Did you invest them? Did you turn them around and make more? What did you do with the minas that were handed to you? Did you do something kingdom worthy with it? What are you doing with the life He's given you? Don't compare to me. I won't compare to you. It's not a matter of, well, that guy's done this and I will never be able to do that. So what? Maybe that guy's a five-talent guy and you're a two-talent person. You realize that when Jesus in the parable of the talents talks about that, the one who's given five and makes five more and returns ten to the master is called good and faithful servant. The one who's given just two talents makes four and returns four to the master and he is also called good and faithful servant. Same thing. doesn't matter how much you have. The question is, what do you do with what you've been given? And it might be just a little bit. Man, turn that little bit around for the kingdom. Let it count for the kingdom for the next age. Woosh says we will all stand at that bar, the judgment seat of Christ. We will all stand at that bar, and it should be part of our spiritual environment always. But he says no one will look at his brother with contempt. Do I? Do you? Is there anybody right now in your life that you hold in contempt? I leave that to you and the Lord. We all got to judge ourselves. Now, I love the church. I love how God squeezes us all into this one body. This one space. The body image is perfect because we're all crammed into the same body. Sometimes it stinks a little bit. We're all in the same space and God puts us here and then He says, by this all men will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. Well, that's great. (laughs) Gang, that's what it's all about. Loving preparation for the kingdom. And the point is, we are not to judge, we are to love. Now there might be a little problem. Some of you may be thinking of this already. Is there not a time when we're supposed to judge? Didn't Peter say, and I will read it to you, 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So are we supposed to judge in the church or are we not supposed to judge? Paul says don't judge each other. Don't judge the opinions of another. And Peter says, but judgment should begin right here in God's house. Which is right? Both of them. Both of them. Because one is a judgment of motives that we are not to do. The other one is a judgment of behavior that we are supposed to do. Yes, we are supposed to judge behavior in the body. We are to teach right versus wrong. We are to teach biblical truth versus heresy. 
We are to judge. We must be intolerant of sin behavior in ourselves and in the body. Now when I say intolerant, I don't mean jerkishly intolerant. But there are things that are not okay. And when those things surface or they come to light, we need to deal with them in truth, speaking the truth in love, as things that are not acceptable to God and therefore not acceptable in the household of God. And so we lovingly share with each other, confess to each other, redirect behavior together that we might be a people of God's own possession. So yes, there is space for judgment of behavior. Behavior that stirs up strife, I have zero tolerance for that. Behavior that causes dissension and conflict, I am not okay with that. That kind of thing cannot be allowed in the body because it tears the body up. What if one hand should have a real problem with the other? Well, I refuse to work with them. I just won't do it. I'm going to stay over here. I will not work with the other hand. Well, I'd say something, but I'm holding the Bible. I'm sorry, that was weird. What if your body was in conflict? It cannot be allowed. It cannot be tolerated. We cannot judge motives, but we must judge behavior. And lovingly share that one to another. Verse 13. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Verse 12, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Literally, judge this. Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. The word there, judge, is crino. It's the word he's been using throughout, crino. Let us not crino one another anymore, but rather crino this. Judge this, he says. Determine this. See, the word judge, kind of like our word judge, can be used in a multiple in multiple ways. I can judge whether I want a hamburger or a hot dog, and that judgment is not intolerant, it's just I'm making a decision. I'm making a judgment. Or I can judge another person, and now we're getting into a messy area. The word judge, crino, let me throw this out to you, I'll do it quickly, you probably won't be able to write this all down. Here is what crino can mean in the Greek language. It can mean to decide, to prefer, as in one thing over another, to evaluate something. To hold a view or an opinion. It can be to decide legally, it can be to condemn, or it can be to rule and govern. Depending on the context, the the word can apply to any of this. And here again, Paul uses the word twice, saying literally, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this. Not to put an obstacle in a brother's way. In other words, you got a problem with someone? Get out of the way. You got a problem with someone? Judge yourself. Evaluate your own motives. What's going on in your heart that's causing you to bring about this judgment of someone else's motives? I just ran across this verse today. It wasn't even in study, it was in staff meeting. And and the Lord directed me to this verse, Isaiah 57, 14. I was looking at verse 15 and I, I noted this in verse 14. It will be said, build up. Build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. I love that. I took that to heart. Remove every obstacle. 
If there's an obstacle in the way of someone else's faith, if you are being an obstacle to someone, remove that. Now, it's not your place to go to someone and say, Chris, you're being an obstacle to my faith. You're being a stumbling block to me. And I don't appreciate it. Well, that's that's not my place. But Chris, of her own volition, of her own accord, could look at me and say, Rick has strong feelings about this, and I completely disagree. But you know what? Rather than cause him to stumble, I'm not going to do it. For example, let's say Chris and Cheryl and I, because that would be more appropriate, the three of us go out to dinner. And let's say Chris's opinion on the drinking of wine is not a problem. My opinion on the drinking of wine is I can't do it because I would fall immediately. Chris has every right as a follower of Jesus, free in Christ, to have a glass of wine. But she knows I've got an issue. What does she do? According to what Paul is saying, the loving thing to do is not to put an obstacle out there. Remember that when we have dinner. (laughs) Build up, man. Remove the obstacles. If we spent more time thinking about each other than ourselves, we would do so much better. Verse 14, he continues, I know and am convinced, and I love this coming from Paul, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. This guy was a Pharisee. And now, talk about radical transformation. Listen to what he's saying. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. What does that mean? Don't get into food fights. Don't argue over the superfluous. Don't debate over issues that are going to be gone by the end of this age. Let's love each other. Don't turn your Christian liberty, and yes, we are free in Christ, don't turn it into a license to do whatever you want. Whoever it harms doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Love. Love is always the highest value. And the stronger brother, the stronger sister, is always the one who's thinking in terms of how can I encourage the faith of those around me. The stronger brother is always the one who loves. doesn't matter if you want to eat at the local, local pagan burger stand or not. Love says, you matter more to me than a Five Guys burger. Ooh, I just call Five Guys pagan? I didn't mean to, but you know I'm an in-and-out guy, so whatever. Romans 14, 17. He says, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Get this. It's not about this age of the flesh. No. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And now we're back on track. This is about the kingdom. Righteousness, joy, and peace. Kingdom preparation. Preparation for the priesthood to come. Righteousness, joy, and peace. These are the things that that sanctify When I find myself more interested in righteousness than drunkenness, I'm being sanctified. When I'm more interested in in peace than pot, just picked it because it starts with P, then I'm being sanctified. And in the context here, please understand, righteousness is the opposite of ripping into a sister. Peace, rather than pounding on a brother. Joy, not jerking someone around. 
no matter how justified I might think I am. Verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Acceptable to God who is looking for us to love. And acceptable or approved by men who are in need desperately of real love. Verse 19, So then we pursue things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Note that. It is evil, it is wrong, it is sin for the one who knows he's free to eat that pagan burger. It's not going to be a big deal for him. He has no issue with it, but he knows it's going to hurt the faith of a brother, but he eats it in his face anyway. That's wrong. Paul says that's not okay. That's what we would call evil. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So if you're with Paul, eat vegetables, man. If you're out with Rick, drink water. You know, consider who you're with and love enough that you will behave in a way that encourages their faith. That's what he's talking about in this whole section. And by the way, that's not just for them, it's for you. It's for me. That as I seek to remove stumbling blocks and love other people, guess what's happening? I'm being sanctified. I'm being kingdom prepped to be a priest of Jesus in the next age. Verse 21. We already read. (laughs) Verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That is, don't violate your conscience. Don't do things that, that you, you sense for you are, are not right. Because those things, if you're doing something you don't feel is right, even if it's okay, but you don't feel like it is and you do it anyway, you're causing yourself to stumble. You are sinning. In fact, Paul wrote back in verse 5, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You want to know what the best way is to be convinced in your own mind? To have a mind that is transformed, that's renewed. To be a person who's transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your being here tonight, I, I, maybe I don't have to tell you this. I'll tell you what, how it works on me. Every week, our studies together on Wednesdays renew my mind. Constantly. I don't get to go very long and start to wallow in my own stupidity. I get renewed over and over. And I get clearer thinking. And then my flesh begins to creep again. And then it's Sunday. And I'm like, thank you, Lord Jesus, for renewing my mind once again. Be in the Word. Stay in the Word. And your conscience will be clear before God because you will be living with a mind continually renewed. It says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is the word makarios. It's the same word Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed. It's not just happy. It's not like happy-go-lucky. It's blessed. It's a deep, rich, full happiness. And if you want to truly be happy, don't be condemned in what you approve. There's supreme happiness in this, in upholding faith and hope 
and love at the close of this age. Remember what we started with. Faith is our language. Hope is our longing. And love, love is our lifestyle. And if we live that way, we truly, above all people, will be happy. Verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now Paul stops in the middle. We're going to stop in the middle. Actually, he continues on. There was not a chapter 15 when he was dictating this to Tertius. But we're going to stop right there and we'll pick up chapter 15 next week. I just want to mention one final thing here and it's in this last verse. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. The word doubt is an interesting word. I remind you what the word judge is. Crino. To judge... Uh, primarily, and that's the word he's used now down through the chapter, Crino is judge. Well, the word for doubt is diacrino. Diacrino. And that's interesting to me. It's translated doubt, but what it means is literally thorough judgment or through judgment. The word has a very definite implication, and it is the implication of doubt, but it's through judgment. Dia is the word in the Greek for through, and krino, judgment, through judgment. What it indicates, what he's saying here, where he says, he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, it indicates a thorough severity. A mind that is critical in judgment. And in this case, and what Paul's talking about, track with me on this, it's someone who is critical of the word of grace. They're doubting because they cannot believe that God is actually freeing them to eat whatever meat they want. That they cannot believe, perhaps, that they are really are saved by grace. They refuse to believe that there's nothing I can do to achieve my salvation. It's a religious mindset. It is a doubting mindset that is critical of God. Critical of the Word of God. That's what doubting is. It's critiquing God's Word and not accepting it at face value. Well, I know the Bible says this, but i got real issues with that. Diacrino. You are thoroughly judging God's Word. And that is doubt. It's not discerning judgment. It is sharp skepticism in opposition to the truth. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That Paul turns this whole thing around. And he says, you're condemned if you eat. He who doubts is condemned if he does eat. That is the person who is critical of the Word of God and saying, there's no way that I can have the freedom to eat meat. But I'm going to eat it anyway. Well, you've just condemned yourself. But Paul nails it. He says, this is, this is critical, skeptical, doubting God. And that is an issue. And it's what one commentator called the unhappy situation of the weak in faith. This is the weaker Christian. The weaker Christian is doubting. We think of doubt as struggling to believe, or, or I, haven't, I haven't prayed in a while and I'm feeling a little low, or I don't hear from God the way I think other people hear from God. And Am I doubting? And I'm not sure about my salvation. And, and wallowing in that stuff... 
Here, the weaker Christian is the one who is unclear in his own or her own mind as to what freedom really is in Christ Jesus. And Paul has just made it clear that the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not eating and drinking. That's not the issue. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And here's the kingdom point. We'll leave it at this tonight. The kingdom point to those who are strong of faith is this. Your weaker brothers and sisters need all the love you can give them. So let's be about that. The love of God, the freedom of Christ Jesus. And let's always remember how Jesus would treat our brothers and sisters. It's exactly how He treated us. Praise God, He loved us so much. Holy Father, Your Word is great. So practical. And as You continue to draw us forward, Lord, I pray for strength among all of us here. My brothers and sisters, strengthen our faith. Help us to understand both what freedom in Christ really means, but also that we are free to give up some of those freedoms if it will help a brother or sister along. Teach us to love Jesus the way You did. To do the things You did. To treat people the way You treated them. And in so loving our neighbors even as ourselves, we will prove that we are lovers of God. And it's in God's name we pray tonight. Amen.